Thank you, Colby. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 5. The book of 1 Peter chapter 5. And that's the last time for some time that we'll tell you to turn to 1 Peter. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 1297. I want us to uh, hop into our imaginary time machine this morning, and we're going to travel back a little more than five centuries to the year 1515. We are in uh, Wittenberg, Germany, and a monk in his early 30s, about my age, named Martin Luther, is going through a dark night of the soul, and he would, he would write of this time, my conscience would not give me certainty, but I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. I wonder if any of you can relate to ever having felt that way. Now, what caused him such inner turmoil, and I am oversimplifying, but it boils down to this, is that he had been taught that grace is not a gift that God gives, but it is in a sense, a commodity that we accumulate, that we earn by taking the sacraments, by purchasing indulgences from the church, and by appealing to the saints who had uh, extra grace that they didn't need or use to, to give us some of their leftover grace. And so Martin Luther was trying to do all those things. He was taking the sacraments, but he says, you know, uh, did, I, did I leave something out of my confession? Was I contrite enough when I uh, made penance? That sort of thing. And he was trying to do all these things, but he could never be certain that he was good enough, which is why he was so troubled, which is why he would lay in his bed at night and toss and turn because he had no assurance. And it's why he felt so liberated when he kept studying Scripture and realized that he had totally misunderstood the very nature of grace, that the thing he had been taught his whole life that that grace is this commodity that we have to accumulate. It's, it's not that at all. Instead, grace is a gift which God bestows freely. I was, I was thinking about that this week because um, we're going to hear Peter speak to us this morning about the true grace of God. I was thinking about that phrase, the true grace of God, the, the authentic, genuine grace of God. And I was thinking about Martin Luther and what occurred to me is while there is one authentic grace of God, there are many counterfeits. See, Martin Luther was tormented by this false understanding of, of grace. It left him with no assurance. Today, I fear that there are many people who have the opposite problem. The opposite is true. They're not tormented by a false understanding of grace. They are lulled into complacency by a different kind of counterfeit. It's a grace that, that doesn't transform anyone. It, it says, come as you are and stay as you are. And so rather than having no assurance, there are many who have false assurance. And so like Luther, we need to have our minds and our hearts and our wills reformed by the Word of God. So let's read together in 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 10. 1 Peter 5 verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called uh, you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful uh, that many, many years ago you saw fit to do a work in the life of Peter to transform him by your grace, to give him a purpose by your grace. And Lord, that you saw fit in your great wisdom and mercy to have him write this letter that can now encourage us and also challenge us. And so, Lord, I pray that every one of us today would would humble ourselves before you and submit whatever thoughts we have or, or presuppositions that we have, that we would submit all those things to you, to what you have spoken in your word. Help us to do that today, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, anytime we're reading a, a New Testament letter like this one, it can be tempting to sort of gloss over uh, the introductions and the conclusions. And to be fair, some of this is pretty standard. Um, like when Peter urges his readers in verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. I couldn't help but sort of laugh about that as I was thinking about it this week. Uh, that was a culturally appropriate greeting. Um, and we don't normally greet one another that way anytime, but I think we can... Uh, it's fair to say that um, in our current moment, it's probably wise to apply that by saying, you know, greet one another with the elbow bump of love or something like that. Uh, in verse 12, Peter commends a man named Silvanus, whom he calls a faithful brother as I regard him. Now, um, just so you know, if you're, you may not be familiar with the name Silvanus, but you may uh, be more familiar with the name Silas. And Silvanus was the Latin version of the Greek name Silas. And so the, the Silas was one of Paul's missionary companions. There's a, a sort of well-known story about Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. That's the same Silas who's now uh, apparently moved to Rome and is, is friends with Peter. And he, he may have been the secretary to whom Peter dictated this letter. Peter says, by Silvanus I have written briefly to you. So it may be that Peter dictated this letter to him and he literally wrote it, or, or at the very least, the, the phrase implies that Silvanus or Silas is the one who delivered this letter to the churches in Asia Minor. So, so either way, it's fascinating to me that Peter honors him, the one without whom we wouldn't have this letter. I mean, without Silvanus, whether he's writing the letter down as, as Peter dictates it to him, or whether he's doing the the difficult and unseen work of, of traveling and delivering this letter so that it re, is received by these people and they can be encouraged by it and then they can then begin to uh, send it around and, and we can read it today. We wouldn't have that if it weren't for him doing this valuable and necessary act of service. Um, Peter also mentions in verse 13, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Uh, that's a, a way of referring to the church in Rome. He's reminding his readers that you're not the only ones who are in exile. Um, so you, you have these different greetings and you have this commendation. You have him telling us to greet one another with the kiss of love and all those kind of things. But more than that, more than sort of those run-of-the-mill greetings and commendations, 
In verse 12, Peter gives a purpose statement that really encapsulates the message of the whole letter in a few brief words. So I want you to look with me at verse 12, and this is really what we're going to focus in on today. He says, uh, by, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. And this is where he's going to tell us what he's intending to accomplish in this letter. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. I want you to, to think with me for a moment about those words, exhorting and declaring. What does it mean? We'll start with the easier one. What does it mean to, to declare something? To declare is to proclaim what is true. Um, a, a declarative sentence is, is one that is meant to inform or persuade. So that's one purpose Peter says, says that he has had in this letter is declaring that this is the true grace of God. When you're declaring something, you're just saying, here are the facts. All right, now what about exhorting? What does it mean to, to exhort? I find it helpful to think of, of a spectrum and on one, one end of the spectrum, you have encourage. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have a command. And exhorting is right in the middle. Exhorting is somewhere on the spectrum between encouraging and commanding. So to try to come up with an analogy, think about uh, a mother who is speaking to her grown children. A parent with small kids, theoretically, and I emphasize theoretically, has the authority to issue commands. Now, whether they listen and obey, different story, but theoretically, a parent with small kids has the authority to issue a command to say, do this, and the child is, is supposed to do it. But a mom or a dad with, with grown children doesn't have that same kind of authority. They can only appeal to them. They can, they can exhort them. They can say, you know what, I... I can't make you do this. You know, you, you're, you're your own person. You, you have to make this decision, all those kind of things. But I really think this is the right thing to do. And I want to just urge you to do that. That's what it means to exhort. And the purpose that Peter says he has in this letter is to do both of those, to exhort and to declare. And you can hear that balance when he says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that, here's a declaration, this is the true grace of God. That's a declaration. Stand firm in it. That's an exhortation. So there, there's an exhortation and a declaration right there in that purpose statement. The declaration is, this is the true grace of God. And that's what he's explained through this whole letter, is what the true grace of God is. And then the exhortation is, stand firm in it. And that's what he's been doing all through this letter, is exhorting us in different ways to stand firm in the grace of God, which I am declaring to you. So that's what this letter has been. It's been a declaration of grace and an exhortation to stand firm in that grace. What I want us to see this morning is that if you remove either one of those, if you take away the declaration of grace or if you take away the exhortation of grace, what you have is something other than the true grace of God. If you take either one of those away, what you have is a counterfeit, not authentic grace. So if you ignore the declaration of God's grace, if you remove 
the declaration, the proclamation of what He has done, who He is, who we are as sinners, and what He's done in Christ to reconcile us to Himself. If you strip that away, then you're acting like salvation is something that depends on you. That's what nearly drove Martin Luther insane, is that, that he, he had no concept of thinking of, of grace as something that was just declared to us of what God had done. He knew his own sinfulness well enough to know that there's no way he could do enough to, to earn a right standing with God. And even when he was trying to do the right things, he said, my conscience would not give me certainty, but I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. So we need to hear the declaration of God's grace that our reconciliation with God does not depend on what we do, on what we accomplish, but on what He has accomplished and on who He is. But in addition to that, we also need to hear the exhortations of grace. We cannot earn God's grace, but we must stand firm in it. And if we don't stand firm in His grace, then we show that we have not received His grace. So that's, those are the two counterfeits. Some people ignore the declaration of grace and they think I just have to work, work, work. And other people ignore the exhortations of grace. They say, well, God's, gonna, God's not going to condemn me, right? You know, I'm, I'm, I try to be a good person and at the end, you know, He's going to be gracious and merciful and, you know, no big deal. And I can just kind of do what I want and then hope that it all works out in the end. When God calls someone into His family, by grace, He also works in them to transform them by His grace. He, doesn't, he says, come as you are, but then He doesn't say, okay, you're perfectly fine as you are. He says, come as you are, but once you come into my family, I'm going to work in you to transform you, to conform you to, to the likeness of my Son. So there should be evidence uh, of His grace at work in our lives. So I want to just sort of take a step back this morning and, and ask... What does that mean to stand firm in the true grace of God? What should that look like in our lives? What are the signs we can look for? And what I want to do is I want to give us five exhortations um, that are based on all that Peter says throughout this letter. So we're going to just sort of glance back at some different places in the letter and we're going to hear five exhortations of what it means to stand firm in the true grace of God. So the first exhortation is this, stand firm in the true grace of God through faith. Now, if you're writing this down to save your finger muscles a little bit, every one of these exhortations are going to start with, stand firm in the true grace of God through, and then the last word or phrase is going to be the only thing that changes. So the first is through faith. Stand firm in the true grace of God through faith. Faith is the first response that God awakens in us by His grace, that we begin to trust in Him. Peter said back in chapter 1, verse, verse 5, we read this at the beginning of the service this morning, that God's people are being guarded by His power through faith. So faith is not something we do in our own power. It's not something we do in our own strength. It's not a work that we do that somehow earns God's grace. But when, when I express faith in God, when I trust in Him, that is a sign that His power is at work in me to awaken that faith, that I'm, I'm clinging to Him because He has awakened me to cling to Him. Now, faith, when we say stand firm in the true grace of God through faith, that's not some vague sense of, of belief in a higher power. 
It has a, a very specific content. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So standing firm in God's grace means clinging to the truth that He has revealed to to us in His Word, that, that He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that He has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So there's all this content that we have to trust in. We may not always be able to articulate it the best, but it means that, that we're not denying some truth that God has spoken clearly in His Word. And we also don't need to confuse faith with, with self-confidence. Faith is not confidence in myself that causes me to walk around with this swagger. Faith does not mean that I never, um, that I never have any questions or anxieties. It means that I entrust those things to the Lord. I lean on His wisdom. I seek His strength. I depend on Him. That's, that's the first exhortation. Stand firm in God's grace through faith. If there's no sign of faith in your life, there is no sign of God's grace in your life. The second exhortation is stand firm in the true grace of God through holiness. Holiness. Here's how Peter puts it in chapter 1, verse 15. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Think about that for a second. You can hear in that sentence a declaration and an exhortation. The declaration is, He who called you is holy. God is holy. That's, that's a declaration of truth. And the exhortation that flows from that is, You also be holy in all your conduct. We don't become God's children by our holiness, but we give evidence that we are God's children by reflecting the holiness of the one who called us into His family by grace. So we need to be very clear that God's grace does not somehow remove the necessity of holiness. It's not like we say, okay, well, God is, is gracious. He's the God of all grace. So I don't really need to, to try to be holy because, right, that just gives him more opportunity to show grace. Paul talks about that in Romans 6. Shall I go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. Grace does not take away the necessity of holiness, grace makes holiness possible. It's what makes holiness even something that we could possibly do or be. It's not a matter of perfection. I'm not saying that unless you're perfect, you're toast. Unless you're perfect, God must not have shown you any grace. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if there's no evidence in your life that you desire to do what pleases God, then there's no evidence of His grace in your life. Because the true grace of God does not only justify us and reconcile us to Him, it also transforms us. Not all at once, but over time. You know, think about the, the, the image of adoption. That's one of the images that the Bible uses to describe salvation. A child who has been adopted into a family did nothing to be adopted. They didn't pick their parents they didn't pay the legal fees. They didn't go to the hospital. I mean, they were at the hospital, but not because, you know, they were trying to do anything. But you get the point, right? They come into the family purely by grace. But once they're in the family, there should be a sense in which they, 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 if they have 
godly parents who love them that they look at them and say, wow, I want to be like these people who love me. I want to be like them because I'm in their family and, and they're my parents, right? That's the idea here is that when God brings us into his family, we don't do anything to come into his family. He does all the work. He pays all the bills. He does all the legwork. But once we're in his family, there should be a sense in which we look at our father and say, that's what I want to be like. I want to be like him. I love him. He is good. He is holy. He is merciful. He is patient. He is kind. I want to be like him. That doesn't mean that we're going to be perfectly like him. But there should be a desire to be like him. And so God's grace should change our priorities. It should change our desires and our wills. So that's the second exhortation is stand firm in God's grace through holiness. Third, stand firm in the true grace of God through loving one another. Loving one another. Here's how Peter puts it in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. In other words, when we're adopted into God's family, not only should we look at the Father who adopted us and say, I want to be like Him, but we should, we should also look around and say, wow, I now have brothers and sisters who've also been adopted, and I should love them as well. It's worth reminding ourselves that love is something God exhorts us to do. I mean, that's a very sort of straightforward thing to say, but it's worth thinking about. That love, loving one another, is not something that arises in us naturally. It's something that God works in us by His grace, and it's something that we must choose to do in His grace. And loving one another is expressed in tangible ways. Peter goes on to say, putting away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and evil, or excuse me, and envy and all slander. It means overlooking minor offenses. It means being open and hospitable with what we have to help others. It means serving one another. So all of these tangible ways that we love one another, that's what we should be striving for if we're going to stand firm in the true grace of God. And none of this is easy, which is why we need God's grace to love one another. And He exhorts us to stand firm in His grace by continuing to love one another earnestly, especially when it's inconvenient, especially when we struggle to find others lovable. The fourth exhortation I want to give us is to stand firm in the true grace of God through witness in word and in deed. So the first two exhortations have to do with our relationship to God, trusting in Him, striving to be like Him. The third had to do with our relationship with one another, loving one another, and now we're looking beyond the family we're looking to those who are outside God's family. Peter urged us back in chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among unbelievers honorable. We should think about how we live in the sight of those who are not yet in God's family. Of course, our first question has to be, what does God deem honorable? What would honor the Father who has adopted us? But one of the most consistent points that Peter makes in this letter is that God has scattered His people in the world for the sake of our witness to the world, that God does not sequester His sheep, but that He sends them into the world. 
And that may mean that we are occasionally subjected to ridicule or even harm, but Peter's reminded us in chapter 3, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So our role is to live in such a way that unbelievers around us would want to know where our hope comes from. And then we have to be ready to tell them, not just to be a good person, not just to be friendly and have them say, wow, that's a friendly person, but to be ready to tell them about our hope. In deed and in word, God calls us to, to stand firm in His grace by bearing witness to His grace. And in the fifth exhortation, stand firm in the true grace of God through righteous suffering. This is a theme all through this letter. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 6, Peter told us, For a little while you've been grieved by various trials. He, he even told us in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So uh, righteous suffering is not, is not meaningless is one of the points. It's, it's one of the instruments that God uses in our lives to help us to, to cultivate all these other things, faith and holiness and love and witness. Peter reminds us that our, our suffering is, is not unique. He said in, in chapter 5, verse 9, Resist Satan, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being expect, are experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So there is, there is nothing that you are going to endure in this life that someone else hasn't gone through at some point. And uh, it's, we need to remind ourselves of that. And we also need to remind ourselves that suffering is not forever. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, he said, For a little while you've been grieved by various trials. And he echoes that here in chapter 5, verse 10, which we read just a few minutes ago. He says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, the phrase little while is not meant to say, you know, in comparison to your life, you're, you know, you're going to have a brief everyone's going to have this sort of brief period of suffering at some point in their life. The point of saying a little while is to compare the entirety of our lives to eternity. The point is that in comparison with eternity, our lives, whether they are 40 years or, or 80 years or 120 years, our lives are only a little while. We suffer a little while, but notice the God of all grace has called you to His eternal glory in Christ. The sufferings are brief. The glory is eternal. And not only has God called us to His eternal glory, it's not like He says, okay, right now you're going through this hard season, your, your life is difficult, but on the, the other end of it, there, I'll be waiting for you. That's not what He says. He says that the one who has called us to His eternal glory will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He is personally involved in preserving us. It's the same truth that you hear in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. He doesn't say, all right, go through the valley of the shadow of death and I'll, I'll go around and meet you on the other side. He says, come on, let's go through this 
together. I'm going to be with you the whole way. So he is personally involved in preserving us, in restoring and confirming and strengthening and establishing. But God's preserving us does not negate our responsibility to persevere. His grace makes our perseverance possible. The way that I, that I heard someone put it one, one time was that God, by His grace, holds us in His omnipotent grip and He strengthens our grip on Him. So it's not like we're relying on, on our, how strongly we can cling to Him, but He's clinging to us omnipotently and He is strengthening our grasp on Him. So His grace makes perseverance possible. We stand firm in His grace by enduring righteous suffering, entrusting all things to Him, and continuing to do good and to love one another and to bear witness. Now, Peter ends this letter by saying, Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. I, that's... Again, one of those phrases that would be easy to gloss over. Um, but as we've been going through this letter, one of the things I've tried to remind myself of, and I haven't done it every week, but every, every few weeks I'll try to remind myself about in the providence of God who it is, the, the human author who wrote this letter and the experiences that he had gone through. And I was, and I was thinking about that this week and thinking about the phrase, peace to all of you who are in Christ, and it reminded me of something that happened back in John chapter 20. Um, in John 20, John tells the story about um, the Sunday after Easter, after Jesus' death and resurrection, and uh, after Peter had denied knowing him three times. And the disciples are... are huddled up in this room because they were afraid. It says they were, they were there for fear of, of the Jews, what they were going to do to them. They've just seen Jesus crucified. You know, who's going to be next? Um, and so they're, they're huddled up, they're afraid. And then Jesus shows up in the room. And what's the very first thing that he says to them when he comes into the room? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Now that you could say, well, man, I mean, that was just a, a traditional greeting. You know, that's kind of like saying hello or what's up, guys. But, I mean, come on. Think about it. Put yourself in, in Peter's shoes, and you can't tell me that that greeting did not take on a deeper meaning for him about what he had just endured, the shame that he felt when he had told Jesus over and over again, no, 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 we'll stand with you. They're not going to crucify you. Right? We're going we're gonna to be with you to the end, Jesus. And then it, the end comes and he's over there in the courtyard saying, I've, I've never met the guy. I don't know what you're talking about. And he's utterly ashamed. He knows how deeply he's failed. And yet here is Jesus standing in the room with the signs of his suffering on his hands and his side. And he opens his mouth and he says, peace be with you. Peter, I know you failed. I know you're ashamed. But I've come to declare peace. And it's only after grace has been shown that peace can be enjoyed. Because the disciples go from being afraid 
and, and hiding and cowering to it says that when he said those words, when he said, peace be with you, that they began to rejoice. And so the question that I want to leave with us this morning is, do you have the peace that comes from being in Christ? Do you have the peace that comes from receiving the true grace of God? If your answer is yes, then, then what are you basing that on? What, what evidence is there in your life that you're standing firm in the true grace of God? Having peace with God does not mean that we're at peace with our sin. It means that we have the peace that comes from knowing that our standing with God does not depend on us. And the peace of having received the true grace of God frees us to stand firm in it. So when I say, do you have the peace that comes from being in Christ, what I don't necessarily mean is, you know, are you always calm? I mean, do you have the assurance that I, I've received God's grace, that I know that it's not up to me, that I know that it's not about how contrite I am or how much I've confessed or, or any of those things, but that it is purely by His grace. And because it's purely by His grace, then I am at peace. If your answer to that question is no, or I'm not sure if I have the peace that comes from being in Christ, then you can receive that grace and you can receive that peace today. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in a moment. And um, this is an opportunity for us to respond to God's Word. And the song that we're going to sing this morning is Amazing Grace because we've been talking about God's grace this morning, but also because that song is one of those songs that kind of like the end of a, of a New Testament letter, it's, it's easy to just kind of Sing it mindlessly, right? I mean, that's a song that we could probably sing in our sleep. It's a song that we could sort of hum without ever thinking about the words that we're singing. But I, I just want to urge us not to sing it mindlessly this morning, but to uh, have our hearts engaged as we sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for the peace that we can have by your grace, a peace that we're told surpasses all understanding. And Lord, we're thankful that you are the God of all peace and you've promised to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But Lord, that promise is only for those who are in fact in Christ Jesus. And so Lord, I pray, uh, Lord, for those who are hearing my voice right now who are in Christ, that you would indeed... Grant them peace, Lord, that, that we would be reminded of the peace uh, that you have declared to us because of the redemption that you've accomplished. And Lord, if there's anyone listening to my voice right now, whether it's here in this building or whether it's somewhere else, Lord, that uh, who've, who've not received your grace, who have not enjoyed your peace, Lord, that they would do that today, that you would afflict their soul until they humble themselves before you and receive the gift which you bestow freely to those who will have it. So, Lord, we pray that you would do this by your Spirit. Spirit of God, we pray that you would move in our hearts, draw us to faith and to repentance, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.